Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against them and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder, an honored man, is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tale. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is still stretched out. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire, no one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, but are not satisfied." Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Amen. If I could sum up the message of Isaiah in a text, in his prophecy, I probably would uh, turn to chapter 7 and verse 9. Just glance back to that. In terms of the message of the book as a whole, Isaiah 7, the second half of verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. These words were addressed to Ahaz, the king of God's people in Isaiah's day. 
they had drifted far from God, and to them, God says, as a warning and an invitation, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. Or if you like, if you do not look to me and to me alone for your security, you have no right to think you will be secure. That's the message of the book. It is a strong message. And uh, elsewhere in the book, it is expressed in different uh, ways. Not so direct, more appealing or invitational For example, just a a couple of verses earlier in chapter 7, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your hearts be faint. It has then, as all these nations are at your borders about to zap you, be careful, be quiet. Do not be afraid. Or in chapter 2, the warning, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? Remember, Isaiah is always addressing God's people. Stop being like the world around you, for you're my people, says God. Stop living independently of me. Stop fearing, man, and trust me. The appeal of chapter 2, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So that's the message of Isaiah expressed in different ways. If you do not have firm faith, you have no faith at all. If your security is not in me and in me alone, you have no confidence you can be secure. But if it is, you can have every confidence. Don't be afraid. Walk in the light of the Lord. That's the message of the book. Now, the section we're looking at today, I didn't, uh, uh, Graham, let you into the secret. Uh, If I told you it was three chapters and you thought he were going to read it, you would have switched off. So he just read a little bit, we're going to look at a big bit. Why are we looking at a big bit? Because it is this section in Isaiah. Isaiah works in significantly large sections, and his section runs 9-8 through to the end of chapter 12, really. We go as far as the end of 11. At least we touch the end of the line. Last Monday, I picked up my friend and mentor Dick Lucas from Waverley and drove him through to Glasgow. If you don't know Dick, he's a kind of Well, he is genuinely a very famous preacher of the last uh, century, and still, along with uh, John Stott and others, um, he kind of pioneered systematic Bible teaching in this country. And we were chatting in the car, and he said, brother, he always calls me brother, he said, brother, you know what bugs me about young preachers of your age? They take big chunks of the Bible on a Sunday. You should take a verse. So I told him we'd taken 13 weeks in Romans, and he said, well done, brother. I didn't tell him about this Sunday, so don't you tell him either. Now, we look at a big section because Isaiah has a big section. Now, the first point you'll see on the sheet, God's urgent warning to his people, 9, 8 to 10, 
for. When you give someone an urgent warning, you want a message to hit home. I had a story this week, a true story, of a little boy uh, who climbed out of the top floor window. It's a, a square in London, one of these squares where people live, these townhouses, tall, thin houses with four floors. And this little boy, aged uh, three or four, got out of the top window onto the roof, walked along it in order, and this is what he said, to see my friend down the street. It's not illogical, it's just dangerous. And his dad saw him from the street below, and you imagine the panic. And he got his son back inside. And this particular father, and uh, I'm not recommending this as a way of parenting, thought he would teach his son a life lesson. So the dad went up onto the roof with a watermelon and dropped it onto the street. You can imagine, this poor child has been traumatized ever since. (laughs) But, you know, it makes the point, doesn't it? It's an urgent warning. It's an urgent warning. And that's what Isaiah does in these Verses 9, 8 to 10, 4. An urgent warning to his people. God is angry with them. And uh, when our musicians play, we often sing refrains in our choruses and songs. Imagine this as a refrain of a worship song. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Four times, four strikes in the verses Graham read. What are the reasons for God's anger against his people then and still? Well, Isaiah highlights four areas, each one followed by the refrain. This comment that the anger of the Lord is turned against his people. Firstly, verses 8 to 12, pride and arrogance. You see it there at the end of verse 9. The people speak in pride and in arrogance of heart. In Israel's case, their pride was self-reliance and self-exalting. They were not walking in the light of the Lord and his word and were doing so defiantly and arrogantly. It seems from what Isaiah says that the people were experiencing the first inroads of military attack. The bricks have fallen, the sycamores have been cut down, but rather than recognizing the meaning of this, God's judgment upon them, they almost laugh it off and in arrogance and defiance, as one writer puts it, they build bigger churches with better gardens. There is a big difference between struggling with sin and a lack of faithfulness, as we all do, and defiance of God in that way of life and in position. God was dismantling their churches. And instead of listening to God and turning to him, they built bigger ones in defiance. When you are out of step with God and he strikes you in some way or puts some obstacle in your path or some warning, whatever it is, the biggest mistake you can make 
is to turn away from God rather than to Him with a humble heart, seeking His counsel for your life. So, verse 13, the people did not turn to Him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. Pride and arrogance. And then verses 13 to 17, the spotlight is on the leaders of God's people. Verse 16, for those who guide this people have been leading them astray. For those in leadership of God's people then and in the church today, these verses are very striking and very sobering. When God's patience runs out and his anger burns, he can take them out. Just like that in one day. One strike and you're out. Verse 14, so the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day, the elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. So read into that a modern paraphrase, the church leader, the elders, one strike and you're out, if God so burns in his heart. Pride and arrogance, bad leadership. Third, verses 18 to 21. The stuff that Isaiah exposes is just wickedness. With the restraints of godly leadership removed, all manner of stuff goes on. Fourth, chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, oppression, exploitation. It's not simply that the people of God are not loving their neighbors, they're exploiting them for gain. You see, when you cross a line, we all struggle to love our neighbors as we should. We all struggle with sin. But when that goes over the line to exploitation or defiance or arrogance or just wickedness or the affirmation of wickedness, then the restraints often come off and God's anger is vented. And so he says, 10.1, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar. Now, every sermon I listen to on Isaiah at this point, the preacher goes into a kind of long three-minute timeout apology. This is really sobering stuff. It is. So what do we do? Do we just not preach on these bits? Do we jump quickly to a nice bit, an encouraging bit? Or do I spin it into something that it's not? Well, no preacher, no preacher would dare surely spin it into something that it's not off the back of a verse that says, one strike and you're out. It is an urgent warning to God's people. It is an urgent warning to God's people. Maybe it's a, an urgent warning to the church in this part of God's globe today. Maybe it's an urgent warning to our church, Chalmers. It might be, might not be, and I'm not sort of got anything up my sleeve of my short sleeve shirt. I don't know. Might be. We would be foolish to think it could never be. It might be a warning to some of us individually. Because we've got out onto the roof 
and we're on the edge of the roof, and we're walking along the roof, and God wants to strike us, that he might bring us back inside. It's always his intention. Let me read you a comment from a sermon from a man called Raymond Ortland, who preached on this section of Isaiah. It's in his commentary. It's a very striking comment. The great danger of these passages is that you exaggerate. He's a minister of a church. He's been there for many, many years. And he writes this. God is no cardboard cutout. He is a real person with real anger and real love. He has wonderful things he wants to talk to us about. His grace can recover everything we have failed to be. But he will not negotiate with our self-exaltation. As we struggle against him, God may walk up to you at some point and punch you right in the nose and knock you flat. And as you are sitting there on the ground wondering, what was that all about? He might kick you in the teeth. But why? Why does God blindside us at times? Because the only way we will listen is the hard way. He would much rather lead us gently beside still waters. But he will never settle for a polite religious unreality with his children and his church. That is spot on. God's urgent warning to his people. So, when you go home today and you have your roast beef for lunch or whatever, don't, well, you can roast me, not that you ever would. But don't, over lunch, say, that was all gloom and doom. Nothing to do with me. Second point, what I've described as God's sovereignty in judgment. Now, just briefly on this point. I listened to uh, some sermons this week from a friend of mine uh, in London. And uh, he confessed that, uh, well, he confessed on the Sunday, but by the, the Wednesday of the week he'd written his sermon, and it was, his sermon was kind of, or he felt the text was designed to shock people. And then by Wednesday, after his equivalent of our staff meeting, he'd been taken apart by the other preachers, and uh, he concluded that the sermon, the, the passage 10.5 to verse 19, was to reassure God's people. But it's probably both. Now, I've referred to these verses 10.5 to 19, God's sovereignty in judgment. I kind of oscillate between whether we should find these verses shocking or reassuring. And the answer is, when you're not sure, it's probably both. And uh, to reflect on God's sovereignty in judgment is both shocking and reassuring. The shock comes and is intended to come when God's people realize that behind the adversities they are facing is the hand of God in judgment. It was the Assyrian army that overpowered God's people then that conquered them, but the Assyrian army was simply God's agent of judgment, a tool, if you like, in the hand of God. 
verse 5 of chapter 10. Look with me. Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. When else in the Bible have you heard of a rod and a staff? To comfort me. And yet here, the Assyrian army is the rod and the staff in the hands of God to judge his people that he might comfort them again. Against a godless nation, I sent him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him. And there's that uh, sobering passage, many of you will know in Romans 1, when God's people turn away from him and his word, there comes a point when God gives over his people to the desire of his heart. God's judgment is often seen in disarray amongst his people. God's judgment is often seen in godlessness amongst God's people. And so when God's people feel they are up against it at a particular point in their history, as we might well feel in the church in this part of the world today, in the West, I guess, when God's people feel they are up against it, what is it that they are up against? Is it the advance of secularism, for example, a river that now runs through the church? Is that what we are up against? Or are we up against God, who is behind it in his judgment? Well, God knows. God's sovereignty in judgment. Think of that illustration from that fellow Raymond Ortland, when something kicks you in the stomach, boom, and you're down and you say, what was all that about? And then something kicks you in the teeth. Is it maybe that it's God who's doing it? God is sovereign in his judgment. Only remember that we might not turn away from him, but turn to him. That's shocking when you come to think about that. It is for me at least. Let me remind you, there's another preacher's line. It is for me at least. It might be for you. It really might be for you and it really might be for me. It's true. It is shocking. It's also profoundly reassuring. It is profoundly reassuring to know that when something kicks me in the teeth or the back, concentrate. That if it is God, then he does it for a good reason. And that if it's not God, he's sovereign over it. It is profoundly reassuring to know that stuff that seems to be nothing to do with God is under his sovereignty. He is behind it all. He is in control of it all. He is almighty. He is sovereign over all things. His people, every nation of the earth. As secularism advances like a tidal wave into the Western world, 
breaks God's heart in the sense that his people will not stick with him in the advance of that tide. But God does not lose sleep over it in the sense of his purposes for the world are being undone. It might even be that God is behind it all. He judges his people, and in the end, he judges every nation of the earth. As chapter 10 develops, yes, God uses Assyria as the tool of his judgment, but God judged Assyria for her arrogance. Verse 12, when the Lord had finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. God is sovereign over his people. He is sovereign over every nation in the earth. He is sovereign over all things. After all, where is Assyria today? Well, you might get it on floor five of the National Museum of Scotland behind a little bit of glass. It is profoundly reassuring that in the darkest times, even as we experience God's judgment, that he is sovereign. In Scotland today, we cannot be sure what God is doing. I wish he would tell us. But he knows what he is doing. He is sovereign. All we can do, and all we must do, is to be firm in our faith, to walk in his light, to live by his word, to trust him, to obey him, to have fear in our hearts of God, and faith in our hearts for God, and rest in our hearts that he is sovereign, and he knows what he is doing. Now, all of this is intended to lead God's people, to lead us to a close, dependent relationship with God. God's urgent warning to his people and the shock and reassurance of his sovereignty and judgment is that we might be what God loves us to be, his people, firm in their faith, their security all in him and in him alone walking in his light, living by his word, faithful and true. God's word is like a sovereign wake-up call. You just heard a phone. What happens when a phone goes off or your alarm? It's when you need to be an experienced preacher. Come on, don't let anything distract you from this serious stuff. What happens when God's alarm goes off? Think of that little boy walking along the roof. What do you do if your three-year-old is walking along the roof four floors up? What would I do? I would say, don't you ever do that again. He would shake, and then I'd hug him. It's what you do if you're a dad, isn't it? You brace them. After you said, never, ever, ever do that again. What does God do now? In chapter 10, verses 20 to 34, he embraces them. Encouragement to a faithful remnant. That's why we don't stop. You've got to go on to the bits that follow in Isaiah's big section. These are wonderful verses, profoundly moving. I've relished them this week. Relished them. Let's read them together, verses 20 to 25 of chapter 10. 
verse 20 of chapter 10. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Israel will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians when they strike you with a rod and lift up the staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. Encouragement for a faithful remnant. Now, there are two groups of people who make up this faithful faithful, uh, remnant. Just before we look at that, uh, we need to be realistic. It is a remnant. It is small numbers. Here's another standard preacher's line when things are are quite hard in their church or in the country where they are. These are the days of small things. You heard that before? Small progress. You know, these really might well be the days of small things in this side of the earth. Because God wants a faithful remnant. People who really will trust and obey him. Live by his word. Small numbers, God has a long-range view in mind. Now, there are two groups of people who make up this faithful remnant. One, there are those who stayed firm in their faith right through these tough years then. When Isaiah, Assyria rather crowded in upon them, they did not flinch. They were afraid, but they didn't buckle. When all around them God's people turned away from God, they kept walking in the light of the Lord, obeying his word. What an encouragement God's word through his prophet must have been to them then. Most people ignored Isaiah's message, but some would have been steadied and reassured by it. Now, I want you to be reassured and encouraged as and if you stand firm in your faith. Now, I might want that as your minister, but God wants it 10,000 times, 10,000 times more. He wants you if you are standing firm in your faith, however feebly and weakly that might be. He wants you if you are walking in the light of the Lord and you are following his word, even if Assyria is crowding around you or the modern-day equivalents, whatever it is, where you are, where you work, as you share your faith, in our corporate life, with all that we need God to deliver for us, If that's where you are, well, you are 100% safe. There is another group who make up this remnant, people who turned back to God, people who were not firm in their faith, people who were not walking in the light of the Lord, but who heeded the warnings and heeded the Lord, and in a spirit of repentance came back to the Lord. Here's another preacher's line. Might that be me? Might that be you? 
It might well be me. And it might well be you. Maybe it's pride or arrogance. Self-reliance, disobedience of God. And I'm not talking about the struggles with sin. I'm talking about the loss of a sense of a conscience that we should be struggling any longer. Or just straight denial. Doing what is wrong. Or security elsewhere. Now here's my text for today. And uh, if you see Dick, tell him we had a text from Isaiah. One verse, one verse. Here we go. Verse 20 of chapter 10. In that, it's wonderful stuff, this. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Israel will no more lean on him who struck them. This is great. But will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. What's the mark of the remnant? What's the mark of standing firm in your faith? People who lean on the Lord in his holiness and who lean on his truth, his word. Isn't that great? We play a game in the holidays with our children. It's a strange game. I wouldn't advise you to copy it. We stand on the edge of the sea um, on a rock, and there's a big deep pool over there. And I say to my children, hold on to daddy's hands and lean back. And they do. They, they do. And I say, you know, trust me. Let go one hand. And that's what Isaiah is saying. Think of it in life. You lean back and all you're holding on to is God. You're leaning on God. He's holding on to you. The images work both ways in Isaiah. You lean on God and he's holding you by his hand. Either way. There's nothing else you're holding on to but your father's hand. With all stuff assailing you from all sides, you are 100% safe. It's when you don't lean on him that you're not. I want to encourage you that as God's people in Chalmers, you are leaning on the Lord. You are. I want to ask us all that we might lean on him more. To lean on a God that is utterly holy and to lean on his word. Wonderful chapters 11 and 12. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. And what I've got to do today is just let the, the, the light of chapters 11 and 12 boom, break in. To this text. 11 and 12, just, just look at it, look at the flavor of what Isaiah is prophesying. Glorious vision for the future. The triumph of grace over failure. In the darkest of times in which Isaiah lived, God gave him and through him to God's people a glorious vision for the future when the Lord Jesus would come to establish an everlasting kingdom, and one day to bring in that kingdom in all of its fullness when God's people will reign with him for all eternity. Now, much of that has happened. Where do we stand today? Jesus has come. Here's a big, 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 big danger in kind of our evangelical church world. We think we have arrived home. We have not, because Jesus has not yet come. Only then, when Jesus comes, will there be church unity. 
purity, godliness, holiness, praise, unending. Until then, the message of Isaiah, will you stand firm in your faith? Will you lean on me and nothing else? Will you walk in the light of the Lord? Will you trust me? Will you obey me? Until that day, when Jesus returns, the message of Isaiah is as relevant and is as powerful still. It is a striking relevance at our point, our stage perhaps, in history. So, did Israel then listen? No. And the Assyrians zapped them. Did Judah, in the southern bit of God's kingdom, listen? No. And the Babylonians, Babylonians zapped them. Did a remnant listen? Yes. And God blessed them. And out of them brought a branch that came a savior, that came an everlasting kingdom who one day will return. Will the people of God in the western part of the world listen? Will the church in this country listen? Will we listen? Will I listen? Will you listen? Or will we go home over lunch today, if I can be really practical, and never give it a passing thought that God might be speaking to me? He might well be just reassuring you. Many of you who will be, because you are walking in the light of the Lord. But we are only safe if we keep on doing so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your living word. Thank you for the wake-up call of your word. Thank you for your anger. A father's righteous anger only because our safety and your gospel and your truth and us are precious to you. Thank you that when your child strays out of a top floor window and walks along the edge of a roof, you are fearful for their safety and your anger may burn. But thank you that if we listen and turn to you, then you are faithful and kind and gracious and that we can, if we lean on you, be utterly, utterly secure. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would, as a church and as individuals, be fast and strong in our faith, that we would walk in the light of the Lord and in light of the Word of God, that we would not flinch, that we would be steady and humble and lean every bit of us on you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.